Welcome to the Illuminate Orthodontic Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Chris Seta. The Orthopreneur Summit is just around the corner, and I'm excited to reconnect with many of you in Orlando. I didn't attend last year's summit, as Nicole and I were on our trip to Italy, but I'm thrilled to bring some of my amazing Blue Wave Orthodontics team members with me this year. We have a fantastic episode on tap for you today, but before we dive in, here's a couple of quick announcements. If you enjoy video content, be sure to subscribe to my new YouTube channel, at Dr. Seta, for insightful discussions with orthodontic innovators such as Drs. John Pham, Alfred Griffin, and Adam Schulhoff. Also, we've recently been including some hidden outtakes from our podcasts. If you're interested in finding those, be sure to stick around until the very end of the show. And now, without further ado, we're on to today's episode. There's no platform that is better than the online groups. There's no cost. There's no barrier of entry. Anybody can voice their opinion. It's much more vulnerable to present a full record case online than it is in a presentation. I'm Dr. Chris Seta, and I'm shining a light on the innovators of our profession. Welcome to the Illuminate Orthodontic Podcast. today's show, my guest is Dr. Chad Foster. As someone who does some professional speaking, sharing your cases in front of your orthodontic colleagues can be a humbling experience. Some would consider sharing your work on an orthodontic Facebook group an even more nerve-wracking proposition, as fellow professionals might scrutinize and pick apart your treatment mechanics and outcomes. Today, I'm thrilled to shine a light on an innovator who is no stranger to the online orthodontic community. Dr. Chad Foster is an orthodontist who practices in Phoenix, Arizona. Chad became the editor of Orthotown Magazine in 2021 and writes a monthly editorial entitled The Voice in the Arena. As you'll hear on today's episode, Chad shares his journey of embracing feedback and turning criticism into an opportunity to refine his clinical skills. Join us as we explore how Chad's openness to sharing full records cases has made him a master clinician in his own right. Well, welcome to the podcast. How are you today, Chad? Thanks, Chris. Very good, man. How you doing? Honored to have you on the show. Why don't you tell everyone where we're at? We are in our version of an Irish pub in our basement. So and this is incredible. My wife Natalie and I had a dream to build a, somehow incorporate an Irish pub into our house. We built our house. We finished in the end of 2019, right before COVID. Yeah. We love to travel. And one of our favorite places is Scotland and Ireland. And we love the idea of a pub ever since being there because a lot of people might picture a pub as a place where you come and get hammered and you know, they definitely do that there in their pubs, but it's more than that. They, it, it's, a, it's a gathering place. You know, when you go to a pub in Scotland, yeah. Ireland, you'll see old people there. There's kids, there's singing and dancing, and people just gather. So when we thought of building a house, we wanted to have a space that, you know, we would have friends over. We'd have somebody come over the podcast. We thought of you. Exactly. Um, so it was all pre-planned, right? <laughs> when I come home from work, you know, my son says, pub, pub, and he wants to go down to the pub. And <laughs> Teaching Sadie, him young, Yeah, child. and my one-year-old Sadie just learned, you know, she's just speaking more, and she says, bup, 
bup, bup. <laughs> and that means pub. She wants to come down here. <laughs> so it's just like a fun gathering space, man. We have like parties here, Super Bowl parties, friends come over. It's just, uh, I want people to feel relaxed and I want people to feel like how I feel when I visit a pub. It's like, we relax, we have a good time, we have drinks, and it's definitely a dream that me and Natalie made come true, luckily. It's amazing. Again, I have to thank Natalie. Your home is beautiful. We're in Scottsdale, Thanks, Arizona. Chris. I want to just describe the scene here a little bit. Is this a tartan pattern or plaid? How would you describe yeah, it on the no, floor? Yeah, no, exactly. It's a tartan pattern carpet. Yeah, kind of green and red and plaid. The walls are a beautiful blue color. You have lots of sort of antiques and old books. I understand you're into collecting books, essentially, right? Yeah. Natalie has great taste. And we had a good designer. If it was up to me, I would fill our home with nothing but like old books and plants because I just, I just <laughs> like that. And I try to talk her into more of both of those things. Um, yeah. I don't know why. I just like that kind of feel for a house. So she lets me get so far with that. And, you know, we have a lot of plants and, and old books. And it's funny when we were building our house and we have antique books in certain areas, there's a site called Books by the Foot, and you can actually pick out antique books of different styles and different wear patterns and stuff. So we did that in our house. That's amazing. I want to mention uh, what we're drinking today. Uh, this is a lovely beverage that you made for us. You know, we're in the Southwest. I like margaritas. Yeah. And in Arizona, we're known for our cactuses. So I like prickly pear margaritas. Is it so cactuses or cacti? You just corrected me. It's cacti. Oh, Absolutely. is it? I, I, I'm not trying I to call up, you out on you, your... you just did. Yeah. Oh. I grew up here and somehow, yes, you're absolutely right. So the prickly pear is like a, the fruit of the cactus? Yes, as far as I understand. And I should know that better. But yes, that's my understanding. All right. But it, it gives it a bit of a pink drink and uh, we can overcome that. But yeah, it's my favorite kind of margarita. Oh, it's amazing. And you shared the recipe with me before. So what type of tequila went in there? Casamigos Blanco is kind of a crowd pleaser. So that's what okay. I put in margaritas. Yeah. And I like experimenting with different tequilas. And it's fun to have a bar for that reason. We have lots of different kinds of things to experiment with. And you're the mixologist. So. Allegedly, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I'm just trying to impress you. Oh, well, I'm impressed. So for those that might want to try to make this at home, it's tequila. Tequila, fresh squeezed lime juice. Okay. And prickly pear syrup. Okay. And you try to find a prickly pear syrup that's mostly prickly pear and not sugar. But there's sugar added to it. It's just a lot of lime juice and prickly pear and tequila. But I water it down with club soda. Gotcha. Because so club soda kind of balances out the sweetness and the alcohol. So, yeah. And I think you can find that prickly pear syrup online oh, right? yeah. if you want to order it. Yeah, there's it, a so. place called Amazon that you can Oh, really? I find it. Yeah. That, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Too funny. Yep. Uh, and I have to mention you have several taps, too. So what are you serving up on tap here at the bar? So I have an IPA that I like called Odell. It's a mm-hmm. brewery in Colorado. They make a really good IPA that they're known for. It's probably my favorite yeah, I have my kegerator, and I never knew what a process it is. I never had a kegerator before. I, I haven't either. Man, the process of cl- it's like cleaning a gun because you really? have to clean all the lines and everything, and you start to realize that, you know where this yeast is going to go bad or contaminate the beer. So it's a lot to clean a kegerator. So anybody who has that knows what's involved in doing that. And it kind of makes me feel like I'm a part of the process, yeah. even though I had nothing to do with the beer. You know, I, I feel like I'm somewhat involved. So, you know, you put in a little more work, but you feel like you're involved in this drink that you're enjoying. Right. You earned extent. it to yeah, some there extent, you go. right? That's what I'll tell myself. <laughs> I love it. Well, I can't wait to try that IPA either. Cool. Chad, we have so many great things to talk about today. I just want to mention a few of them before we dive in. We're going to talk about your practice, Butterfly Orthodontics, and how that sort of transformed into being, right? Ooh, mm-hmm. like the plan words there. You recently became editor-in-chief of Orthotown. Congratulations on that. Thanks, man. We are going to be talking about facial aesthetics, because actually I'm out here for the Dynaflex meeting, which you spoke at, which was phenomenal. Yeah. So we're going to dive into that topic today, too. But before we do all of that, I'd love to learn a little bit more about you. 
you mentioned you're a native of Arizona, right? Yep. So yep. you grew up basically in this area more. Yeah, most right? people are transplants. We have so many people that have come over, especially since COVID, yeah. from California or the Midwest. Just like you're from Florida, you've seen the prices in real estate go way up. We've oh, seen yeah. that in Arizona, and it's quite a destination. Despite our summers, our triple-digit summers, somehow we're still a destination, so... It's right. cool, but yeah, I'm a native, grew up here. My grandpa, actually, Pete, he started Pete's Fish and Chips, which is a fast food chain in Arizona. There's yeah, eight heard locations. About that. Yeah, he was in World War II. He was a PT boat captain, mm -hmm. and he contracted malaria, and he lived in Indiana, and he needed to move someplace dry, so he moved out to Phoenix, Arizona, hmm. with his three daughters at the time and his wife, and he had no way of making money, but he was of Scottish descent, mm -hmm. loved fried fish, and he was a golfer. And he decided that he was going to get a deep fryer on wheels, a little cart, and take it to the golf course. And he sold That's deep awesome. fried fish. And the story goes that he came home from work his first day and he made like $2 or something. And he told my grandma, we're going to be rich. We're on to something. <laughs> like, this is going to work. Wow. And then from there, he built the business into, uh, you know, one of Arizona's very first fast food chains. No way. And, oh, yeah. Arizona's a young state. We were the 48th state in the union. Oh, interesting. Uh, yeah. yeah. And it's kind of got a cult following. You know, it's definitely a greasy spoon. It's not your high-end uh, deep fried fish, yeah. <laughs> but people here love it. So I'm proud to proud of my grandpa. Oh, that's awesome. And it's called Pete's Fish and Chips, right? Pete's, yeah. And I believe he built it up to eight locations, right? Yeah, yeah, eight locations. And then um, he tragically passed. So he was a coin collector. And unfortunately, there was a robber who broke into his apartment and ended my grandpa's life. And it was a really big deal for our family. And my mom, at the time, he was running all the locations. And my mom and her sister, Kathy, had to step in and take over this business that was running. And it was an extremely stressful time for them. Yeah. And at the same time, they're trying to find the person who murdered their father. Yeah. And the case went cold uh, after a few months, and there were no leads. And my mom, a credit to her, and I get a lot of who I am and my drive and a lot of different things from my grandpa and my mom were very similar. Yeah. She took it upon herself. She knew that the coins were stolen and this person would eventually sell them. So she contacted Smart. every pawn shop in town for the next months after the police told her, you know, we're, we're not going anywhere with this case, basically. Hmm. And then one person at a pawn shop, this is months, months later, reported the coin to my mom. And then my mom took that to the police. They put the person who did that away for the rest of his life. And um, that's just like one story that I could tell about my mom. I'm a big fan of my mom. And that's a lot amazing. of who I am is yeah. a credit to her. So, yeah. How old were you when all this happened? Man, I think I was around somewhere between five to seven, something like that. So you don't and really I don't remember. really remember it, but I remember it was just super traumatic for my mom because she's dealing with that sure. and now being thrown into the business. She was a stay-at-home mom. So I can think of my practice and what I put into my practice and, yeah. and taking it off the ground and the stresses that I deal with, but nothing will be as stressful as it was for my mom then at that time, trying to just on the fly... Because she said that everybody that worked with her business creditors and people they borrow from or food distributors, they basically said, you know, I think your business is done. Like, you know, you're not really. Gonna be yes. Oh, yeah. Wow. And she she just kept it afloat. So so credit to her for. Yeah. What an incredible story yeah, for was, like stepping in and her and her sister. Right. For sure. Yeah. My worst day is nothing in comparison to I'm sure what she dealt with, you know, those yeah. first six months. So. But yeah. like you said, you probably get a lot of your like entrepreneurial spirit and maybe grit too, right? From your mom and your yeah. grandfather. Very proud of her. And yeah. So tell me, where'd you go to undergrad? I went to Chapman University. So I played okay. tennis in high school and I played oh, tennis nice. for Chapman, Orange County. It's an awesome, awesome school and it's grown a lot. Now it's in a town called Orange in Orange County. It's, it's mm -hmm. just very pretty. Loved my time there for sure. And yeah. you ended up staying for dental school, right? 
So I went to USC in Southern California, fight on all the Trojans out there. Um, I went there for four years and stayed for residency. I had a great time at USC. Loved dental school. I actually got to live in an undergrad fraternity as a house advisor for my last three or four years there. I lived there rent-free. It was an amazing time. Cool. It was pretty crazy. And I read during your residency, you actually won an award too. So at USC, at the end of your residency, they present 10 cases and there's a Harry Doherty Award. I was lucky enough to receive that award for our case presentations, and I have awesome. a lot of respect for Harry Doherty, so that was, uh, that was quite an honor. Was he one of your faculty there? He wasn't at the time. He was okay. previously, but his son is a faculty member now, so gotcha. definitely very proud of that and just grateful. Yeah, congratulations. Thanks, so man. so what pulled you back to Arizona, the fact that your family was here? So when I went out to USC, they had a program in Arizona called the Witchy Scholarship, which they pay for a third of your dental education if you come back for those number of years from school. So I was very lucky to receive that. So, you know, motivated that way for sure. But then yeah. also, I'm very close with my family. And mm-hmm. so I wanted to come back here. I also considered staying in Southern California as well, because my wife, who I met in dental school, is from San Diego. And I love San Diego. I love Orange County. But it was just the timing made sense. And, and I couldn't find a job when I came out in 2010. There were no, it was a bad time of the economy. And so when that I was, got, right? oh man, yeah. yeah. So when I got an offer from Western Dental in Tucson, Arizona, I took my wife out, then my girlfriend to a nice steak dinner. And I was like, we made it, honey. You know, <laughs> That's like, awesome. I got a job at Western Dental. Oh, we're yeah. we're going to be okay. That was definitely fun. I mean, I got that job like probably a few weeks before my residency ended. I remember there was one guy in residency who didn't even have a job for like a year. Uh, it, was, it was just tough to find work. I moved straight out there without even visiting because I had no time. And I just moved into an apartment complex across from where this Western Dental was in Tucson. And I guess it was a bad area of town because my first day I told my assistants like where I'm living, I'm this new guy. And I just moved down living in this apartment complex over there. And they're like, you're living where? <laughs> and I was like, what's wrong? And they're like, people are murdered over there. Like... Every other month, there's like a story coming out of that place. And oh, I thought man. I was just lucky. I thought I was like, well, I'm paying 375 a month. You know, <laughs> yeah. I'm on a budget here, but knock on wood, it worked out okay. So, wow. so what yeah. was your experience like working for a corporate practice? It really shaped me and, and there was good and bad for sure. But basically my first five years out of practice, I worked for different corporate dental practices in Arizona. And Arizona, if people don't know, is like corporate dental headquarters. I mean, we are... I think we're number one in regards to the influence of corporate. Oh, yeah, for sure. Because there's so many people that are transplants to Arizona. That that it's just ripe ground for corporate dentistry to come in here because people are finding new dentists all the time. I worked for five years. It was a valuable experience because I say it like this. You learn how to land planes that are on fire. Like you take (laughs) over all these cases, you come in there and they're all, I mean, some are better than others, I'm sure, but all these cases are out of control because there's been a new orthodontist in there every six months, every 12 months, whatever it is. Nobody's had ownership. None of these orthodontists think they're going to be there to finish it. So they're all kind of on cruise control. Mm, So you take over these cases and many of them are, you know, many are fine, but a lot of them are just, you know, changing treatment plans or they don't have a plan. And so it's sad for the patients, but for me as an orthodontist, I'm taking over these things and there's skills that are learned in taking a case that's out of control and trying to bring that thing into like a safe landing. Yeah. You know, so I did that. I did yeah. that for a lot of cases. There's definitely skills that are learned in doing that. You yeah. know, I'm glad I'll never have to practice knock on wood another practice like that. But yeah, it was, it was I definitely think there's learning. an important lesson in there because I've associated at some practices as well, and I've landed a few planes of my own Mm -hmm. in my time. But I think for younger orthodontists maybe listening, you know, I've always said that sometimes you can learn what not to do. And that's equally as important as learning what to do. Totally. And figuring that out for your eventual practice. Yeah. So if in your own cases, if you have a case that goes sideways on you, 
you've had that experience of taking over many cases that are in that position already, you know, say it like that. So it helps. Yeah. And I think sometimes too, just being exposed to different treatment philosophies or mechanics, because, you know, coming out of residency, of course, we all think we know and have seen everything, yep. right? Yeah, for and sure. And so I think there's a benefit to that yep. as well. You're protected in residency to a certain extent, and then mm-hmm. you come out in the real world and you see certain things or you take over cases and, and uh, yeah, you kind of figure it out on the fly. When we come back in just a moment, how Chad eventually found his orthodontic practice, how he became the editor of OrthoTown, and we discuss the good, the bad, and the ugly of the orthodontic Facebook groups. Stay with us. You're listening to the Illuminate Orthodontic Podcast. Kind support for this podcast comes from 3M Oral Care. Streamline your workflow and bond an entire arch of pre-coded brackets at once with the 3M Digital Bonding System. Design truly customized treatment plans with digital bonding and increase your clinical efficiency through the product's fast indirect bonding, accurate bracket placement, unnecessary need for segmenting the tray, and no flash to remove with 3M APC flash-free brackets. To explore how you can experience the future of custom bonding, visit 3M.com slash digital bonding. Welcome back to our conversation with Dr. Chad Foster. So how'd you end up with your practice? Tell us that story. So I practiced for five years and then I was looking for different opportunities at the time, but it was kind of paralysis by analysis because you'd kind of overthink things or oh, you get close. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I was, I was in that mode for a long time because I, I moved on, like I played leapfrog from different corporate jobs, Did different you? corporate jobs, associates. Yeah. I finally got to know that my personality is going to work out better if I'm calling the shots, I'm accountable. If there's wins, I'm responsible. If there's losses, I'm responsible. And I said, you know what, I'm going to do my own thing. And I knew a great guy named uh, Ken Alexander. Thank you, Ken Alexander, who I was friends with. And he said, there's a practice in Phoenix. Introduced me to Clark Jones, who had been practicing at this location since 1972. He was kind of in retirement mode, and he just brought me on. And I practiced with him, purchased the practice on April Fool's Day of 2016. And don't think that I didn't think about that the day I signed the papers. I was (laughs) like, what am I doing here? Um, It was awesome from the beginning. You know, it was a practice that used to do, back in the day, it was doing very, very well. And Clark had just been comfortable with it and kind of retirement mode. And But I will say, I learned so much from him. He's the biggest influence on me in orthodontics. He is a tremendous orthodontist. He was an engineer for a long time and extremely progressive in his thinking. Like at his age, when I took over the practice at 71, he was still going to courses he was going to Pitts courses, and he was up to date on everything new. He was the first guy to have a CBCT in Arizona. He wow. was the first guy to okay, use Damon cool. brackets in Arizona. Yeah, He was just very, very progressive in his own right. And a lot of the things that I pick up that I talk about, such as eyelets or permanent retainers bonded only on the lower threes, and many, many other things I picked up from Clark. So I don't know if he's going to listen to this or not, but if he does, then thank you, Clark, because he's just the man. And, yeah, and I, I mentioned to you earlier, I haven't had the pleasure of meeting him in person, but I did chat with him on the phone because he also yeah. was sort of an inventor too. And, and yeah, I don't want to mention the idea just in case he's still developing yeah. it. 
Uh, but he was just looking for maybe some inventing guidance, but seemed like a really great guy. He is. Yeah. It's such a small world, man. Yeah. My life is about orthodontics. You know, my family's first and everything else I give to orthodontics because I love it. And he is so that way. It was tough transitioning for him. And I went through that with him, you know, and I I love him so much. And uh, he dedicated his life to his patients. He would always say, practicing orthodontics is the biggest blessing of my life. I heard him say that many, many times. I think we're so lucky to practice orthodontics. And I really meant that. And this weekend I talked about how I love getting around other orthodontists because I feel so extremely blessed in my life to do this. And I have a lot of friends. I have a lot of friends that are in... You know, they have good paying corporate jobs or different jobs in different fields. But I, I have to check myself when we talk about our profession or talk about what we do, because I, I feel like I'm almost bragging about how much I love what I get to do. And when I get around other orthodontists, you know, I'm almost like, is this real, man? Like, this, yeah. this is incredible, isn't it? That's just really fun for me because yeah. I can see myself doing a lot of different things. But our profession is just so cool in what we get to do, helping people, the artistry that we get to do the different niches within the specialty that we get involved with, that we have passion about. And I see that on so many other orthodontists. I know I share that with them and it's very cool. Oh, I feel so blessed to be part of this profession. I think you said in your lecture, you felt so incredibly uh, lucky, right? To be in this position and just being around other individuals like you who are so passionate and motivated. It's just inspiring. Cool. I love it. I feel the same. Yeah. So let's chat a little bit about how you got involved with Orthotown. Well, I had just put an article in Orthotown called Outside In. And I discuss kind of how I go through dental facial diagnosis as it relates to aesthetics. Hmm. So at the time, this was 2021, Dan Grobe was the editor of Orthotown at the time. Mm-hmm. And he told me, love the article. And then, you know, that was that. And then a month later, he contacted me and said, hey, I have a question for you. And when he told me that on there, I kind of felt like, you know, what is this? I was kind of wondering what that would be. And then he called me and said, would you consider being the editor of Orthotown? And at the time I said, I don't think so. Like, you know, I can't imagine how that would work because I'm, I'm pretty much maxed, you know, yeah. in my practice clinically, I give so much there. And then years prior to that, I mean, the reason why Dan knew me was because of my posting online on different forums, like orthopreneurs and orthodontic pearls. Yeah. And that takes a lot of time. It really, really oh, does. Yeah. And, and I'm sure we'll talk about that, but he noted me from that. And he said, Hey, I like the way that you write. I liked your article. Would you be willing to do this? So I ended up saying yes. Cause I was like, you know what, at the end of the day, and this is what I told my team when I was talking about, it, I was like, if I suck at it or if I like, you know, if it's too much after a year, I'll say, I'm sorry, I'm out, you know. Uh-huh. But I said, I don't know if this will come around again. I do enjoy writing, you know, and I, I probably get too wordy on some of my posts. I get nerdy and wordy. And so I was like, well, you know, maybe writing a column a month, it won't be that bad. And so I accepted it. And it's been really fun, man. It was kind of a learning curve at first because there are some functions of of editing that I don't really like. Mm-hmm. But the part of writing an article a month, and for those that have seen my columns, I write probably half on clinical And then half on just kind of like outside the box, just things that stay on my mind, maybe things I'm working on in my personal life, maybe things I'm not good at or things that I'm putting my effort into. And it's like this cathartic thing of sharing where it's like therapeutic for me. It really is. So through that, I've kind of discovered I love the art of orthodontics. Mm -hmm. I really love the art of writing. It's just interesting to me. Taking what's in your mind and putting it into words and crafting those words and putting it in something that, you know, picturing other people digesting those words in a certain way to make them feel or think something. It's cool, man. I never knew that that would be something that I'm into, but I really am into it. I like it a lot. Your editorials are fantastic. Very oh, thought-provoking. Thanks, I believe it's called Voice in the Arena, right? Yeah. Sort of the series title. Yep. Where did that come from? There's a quote by Teddy Roosevelt called The Man in the Arena. 
And I couldn't recite it for you word for word, but I just love it. I made a post about it one time where I just mentioned other orthodontists who post online or contribute to the profession. I said, these are the men and women of the arena in our profession. I have a lot of gratitude for people who share their words and their work. And I enjoy the process of doing that as well. When I post online, it's a vulnerable thing to do, but I love it. I mean, totally as I explained is. this weekend, it's I'm a student of orthodontics and I love being a student of orthodontics. And posting and making yourself vulnerable, sharing your cases with friends, whether it's a study group or in person or online, there's nothing that's going to sharpen your saw better than that. Yeah, you know, and, and you will take criticism and it's a vulnerable thing. There's no doubt about that. Yeah. And like I mentioned this weekend, nobody likes to receive criticism, especially when it's tied to like one of my patients, this person that I really, really care about, this work that I've been putting two years into. And to receive criticism on that is a tough thing, but it's something that has to happen. Criticism is part of progress. I want to progress in things that I'm interested in getting better at. And if you avoid criticism, that's not a pathway to progress. And one of the things that I think is a problem in our profession is the echo chamber mentality that surrounds continuing education. Mm -hmm. And I've been involved in some awesome groups, particularly aesthetics or different things. And a lot of those groups, they become echo chambers because they don't make themselves welcome to outside ideas or things being questioned. And I think that's the beauty of the online forums. And that's why I say that those are the arena of our specialty. Anybody's welcome. Mm -hmm. All voices are welcome. And that can be a bad thing at times as we've seen online. But ideas get questioned. Cases get questioned. And one of the points I made in the lecture this weekend was, in my opinion, if you are presenting a full record case study which I think are the most valuable pieces of information in orthodontics, Mm -hmm. you know, not more valuable than our peer-reviewed journals because those are obviously the gold standard in our practice. But if you're talking about a single full-record case study, there's no platform that is better than the online groups. There's no cost. There's no barrier of entry. Anybody can voice their opinion. It's much more vulnerable to present a full-record case online than it is in a presentation. Oh, sure. In a presentation, you're not going to field the same questions. Your records are sitting there The person who's critiquing has an opportunity to really assess that. They have an opportunity to ask really pointed questions. You have an opportunity to assess and respond. It's not like that when there's case studies presented in presentations in person or in journals. It's not the same. So I think that it's the good and bad that comes with that because it allows for really thorough dissection and discussion of cases and concepts, Mm -hmm. but it also opens the door for negative forms of criticism, what I particularly dislike, like a straw man argument or uh, just kind of some things that get kind of ugly, but it's good and bad in there. And it's been a trip for me, man. It's been a journey. I started posting in like 2019. It's been a professional and a personal growth thing for me. A path of a student is somebody who embraces, in my opinion, tolerance and humility. Mm -hmm. And those are two things that I know in my life there are things that I want to make progress in, being a better dad, being a better husband, being a better orthodontist. In my opinion, if you make tolerance and humility your two companions, you're going to progress much faster than someone that doesn't have those as their friends. I feel very strongly about that. And And that's what I admire about you, Chad, is that tolerance and humility, because you know, someone who can do the work that you have could have quite an ego, right, and approach it from that way. But you're super humble. And, you know, just going back to what you said before, as far as presenting cases, you know, there's times I've been a little hesitant about posting cases. And, you know, I think what I fear isn't the criticism, but it can get a little dirty and nasty, right, too, on some of these groups, these keyboard warriors that, you know, if you presented that in a meeting, it probably wouldn't get as personal and pointed. Right? People no, would have a little more decorum, I think. Oh, yeah. It's if like they said it driving, to your face, right? Yeah. It's like somebody driving by and flipping you off. You right. Know? Yeah. Are they, are they going to walk by you and flip you off? Probably not. Yeah. And, and it's very similar to the online forums. Yeah. 
it's unfortunate. And that really keeps people away, you know. So and do you have like thick skin? Like, because I admire that you do share your cases and, and with full records, know, CBCT and everything. I've pretty much been called everything. Like I've, I've had people say your cases are no better than Smile Direct Club oh, or geez. your, you know, what you did is a failure. I mean, all kinds of things like that. And um, someone even dug on your man bun, I heard. Too. Yeah, you know, you get it from all angles, from all different <laughs> types of people, but you get used to it. You know, I think after a certain volume, you kind of are more accepting of it. And that's why I said, yeah. like, on a certain level, it makes me a better orthodontist professionally because having other people's eyes on your case and getting that criticism from all different angles, you get a feel for how people perceive orthodontics. And for someone like me who likes to share or write or whatever, it's good to stay in tune with what people are thinking about your work or about just or how orthodontics is practiced in general. Yeah. It just comes with it. So how do we get more people on the sidelines? Because even I hear some of these like so-called masters of orthodontics, if you will, sure. are a little hesitant to post cases just because they don't want to get dragged through the mud, essentially, right? That's just what you open yourself up to on that platform. But again, I think it's better than the echo chambers that a lot of our continuing education is done in. It's just unfortunate. Yeah, because I think that things do need to be questioned. And if somebody is being an ass, you know, mm -hmm. people know that they're being an ass and you don't have to respond to that or you can take it to a better place. When people criticize my work online because of maybe my tendencies of how I like to practice, they'll assign me certain viewpoints that I don't even have. And it's core to like a straw man fallacy. And so when I take criticism and criticism is a good thing and it doesn't ha it doesn't have to be done with kid gloves. Like, I don't mind at all if someone says I think I would have treated this totally different. I think that your way of doing this is a failure in this way. I have no problem with that. That's not bad criticism. Bad criticism is when things get convoluted and conflated into, you know, me being assigned perspectives that I don't have or assumptions being made on behalf of things that I haven't done. Or sure. I try to bring things back to the actual work or word that is being presented. Like I'm accountable for my work. I'm mm -hmm. accountable for my word. And so I would love the discussion to stay there. If people don't like the way that I treat or they would have done a different way, that should be voiced. And I think that makes the discussion better when they do voice it that way. But things can get ugly. And I think that that keeps, unfortunately, some people who would be great contributors away. Because I do feel strongly that those online platforms, I think that that criticism speeds up and benefits learning for everybody. So I wish there were more people that posted and yeah. Do you think on social media, people tend to put others in a box? Like if they haven't met them on a personal level and they only really know sort of this persona or perhaps what products they use, they sort of mentally just come up with a picture of how you are. Yeah. And I think naturally we do that. You know, if we have limited information about this person, you know, our minds are prone to make assumptions or fill in the blanks. Mm -hmm. You know, you're only giving me so much information right now. Let me fill in the blanks for you. I'm going to fill that in with my assumptions. And so I think that's just part of it. When I get someone who claims that I'm something that I'm not, after a certain amount of time, I think you get used to just letting that go. I don't feel the need to defend myself against a claim that someone is putting in my mouth. I think that just comes with time. And it's always uncomfortable. And it's always a vulnerable process, but it's made me a better person in my life. Being vulnerable in that way, I think it opens a lot of doors in your life in different ways, is yeah. what I'd say. When we come back in just a moment, we learn about Chad's orthodontic mentors, and we deep dive into some clinical pearls from the Exceptional Aesthetics course. Stay with us. You're listening to the Illuminate Orthodontic Podcast. Kind support for this podcast comes from Dental Monitoring. 
Are you looking for remote monitoring to optimize your schedule so you have more time to market and grow your orthodontic practice? Are emergency appointments a source of stress for you and your team? Would automatic notifications based on 130 plus intraoral observations help you keep treatment on schedule? Well, dental monitoring is the solution. DM is an AI-driven remote monitoring technology that gives you the information to streamline your workflow and improve the quality of care. Your patients will love the convenience of dental monitoring and the easy in-app communication helps elevate their experience. To learn more about using DM in your practice, head over to dentalmonitoring.com pod. And we're back to our conversation with Dr. Chad Foster. I want to circle back. Uh, you mentioned Dr. Clark Jones earlier, but who are some of your other mentors? The biggest mentors in my life would be Dr. David Sarver, who during COVID, I read his book, Dentofacial Diagnosis. When I finished it, I read it again. You know, I had nothing, I had nothing to do during COVID. I had our backyards not built. I have a hammock out there. And I'm stressed about my practice. What is COVID? When are my doors going to reopen? Yeah. And so I just cruised through that book and then read it again. Other than Clark Jones, he's the biggest influence. And then Tom Pitts, I just absolutely love. I love his concepts. I love the way that he thinks. I took his two years master's course, and it was one of the best courses I've ever taken. I have just tremendous respect for him. I've read every protocol magazine he has twice. For me, what attracts me to someone who I want to learn from is someone who I'm into concepts and I'm into viewing things a different way. You know, taking my perspective and kind of flipping it on its head and trying to put myself in someone else's brain. And when I talk or I write or I lecture, I like to try to put someone in my head and see through my eyes. And like what I told everyone this weekend, I said, you may not see things the way that I see them. And that's fine. I don't care. My goal is to try to put you in my head through my eyes and let you see kind of how I see things and then disagree with them. You know, Mm -hmm. don't adopt, don't treat the way that I treat, but maybe that'll influence you in subtle ways. Or maybe you'll have something to question me on or feedback that I'll learn from. So I love people that teach that way. And I have an emphasis for aesthetics. I love people who are into aesthetics. I've watched every Stuart Frost course that's online. I love Stu Frost. Have you done um, his in-office course? I did the digital version of it, Okay, you know, that he had and some other online courses of his, but I love Stu I'm Frost I'm dying to sure. take that one. Yeah, for sure. He's an excellent orthodontist and just a wonderful guy. So him, Sarver, Pitts, Tito Norris as well. And all those people, like I practice slightly different than all of them. And I love that. I love being in a lecture and seeing and just saying, you know, I hear that, but I don't totally agree with that. Or I see this concept, I would do it a little bit differently. I love that, you know? Yeah. And when I share my work, I anticipate that people may get something from it, but they'll have an iteration that's different. Or they'll say, you know, I don't totally agree with that. My view is this. I just love sharing and I love, it's part of my process of learning personally and, and professionally. So it's very time consuming. It's fun for me. Yeah, I think, you know, that's one of the cooler things about our profession is that there's no necessarily right or wrong way of approaching things. There's different ways. And it's funny, I had a patient in a consult recently. It was, I think, a second or third opinion. And they're like, how come you orthodontists can't agree on this? And uh, I didn't see that as a bad thing because I really feel like in other fields or specialties, uh, even if you look at, you know, politics, people don't agree. And that's okay. So right, man. I think about how our specialty is, and I think that's such a beautiful part of it is that there's, depending on your treatment goals and what you see, there's different ways to do it. And I see the controversy in our specialty and people disagreeing and it getting heated and it getting ugly at times. But I think that's a testament to how beautiful our profession is with people really being passionate about what they do. Yeah, Like people are passionate enough to where they're going to have an argument 
in their personal time about orthodontics. I don't know if it's like that in everything else. Like I think of like podiatrists. Do they have groups where they're so passionate about, you know, Maybe feet they too. And that they spend their spare time putting <laughs> together presentations and arguing online? And I hope they do. I hope they do, man. I hope, For their I sakes, hope, right? I hope podiatrists are, you know, they have a podcast. Maybe we somebody... should go to a meeting, right? Yeah, <laughs> man. And, and I, you know, if it was black and white and there was no shades of gray and there was no agree to disagree and, and different ways of doing it. Be pretty boring. Man, that would take away. Oh, man. Yeah. And that subtlety is also why I love aesthetics, because aesthetics are subtlety. You know, there's shades of gray. If you look closely enough, you know, those things are important. And that draws me to aesthetics for sure. Yeah. Let's dive into that a little bit, because obviously we're here for the aesthetics course that Dynaflex put on. It was sure. uh, You were the speaker as well as Dr. Tito Norris. Loved the presentations that you guys did I think Tita was a little more on a macro level, so to speak, right? Diagnosis and facial aesthetics. And, and I think you were, uh, gave a lot of really great pearls on finishing and loved the results I saw. Uh, hats off to Thanks, you, man. sir. Why don't you tell us maybe some of the pearls that you mentioned this weekend? I look at things outside in, you know, influence of yeah. David Sarver. One thing that I'm really into now, and I gave a presentation for the JCO. This was like a webinar like a month or two ago. So my presentation this weekend was just expanded because if anyone listened to that presentation, I was just flying. I had an hour and there was just, I had like 500 <laughs> slides. It's fun for me to try to get through all that. Uh, there's no way I could. So this weekend, it was a little bit more spaced out, talking about what I think of in aesthetics, things that I think are important. Talked about profile, lips, different types of expansion. When I talk about things, I also like to talk about limitations. I like to talk about limitations of dental alveolar expansion, alveolar thickness, cases that are good for certain types of movements, cases that right. aren't. Because I think that's important to talk about, too. That was great stuff. Sort of like upriding the buckle segments, right? Sure. For yeah. lingually tipped crowns. What's the etiology of the problem that's being presented? Is it skeletal in nature? Is it dental in nature? I just find that very interesting. I get into the nitty gritty and the weeds. I, I find that stuff very interesting. You geek out, um, but I, I love I that. totally do, for sure. And I got to talk about vertical because I'm really into vertical. That's oh, kind of something new that I I'm into. Is like, I'm interested in, in vertical, in short face patients yeah. and things that you can do to alter that. So that's kind of... My little mini niche that I'm super into right now. You know you're an ortho nerd when you're like really into a plane of space, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> and I am, man. It's fun. The cool thing is I look back on where I practiced like three years ago and it's so different now. And the exciting so? thing, oh man, I mean, having not read David Sarver's book, having not read Pitt's protocols in the course and the things I've seen from Stuart Frost, the things that I agree with with those people, the things that I disagree with with those yeah. people that have influenced me in regards to aesthetics the discussions that I've had online presenting cases, the feedback that I've gotten from people. It's just all of that kind of molds me into how I treat that's different. And so it's exciting because I don't know what I'm going to be doing in three years. It's going to be different than it is now. And so it's really this journey that I'm on, you know, treating in ways that I think that are important to me, that are the best that I can provide on the treatment goals that I consider important. I don't know. It's almost exhausting if I think about it because of what I'll have to learn in the next three years or the things that I'll I don't know. It's just, I'm just grateful to have a passion for being on this path, I guess. That's amazing. Just circling back some of the other wonderful things you mentioned today, just for people looking for some pearls, you talked about functional bite turbos, which I learned about from Dr. Brian Anderson. I don't know if he came up with that. That's how I first saw Brian made a post of that years ago. And I've started using those last two years. I think I made a post where I talked about it and then Brian said he learned from somebody and then a couple other people posted, no, I saw this from this person and that person. Okay. And so you kind of go through the history of it and it's pretty cool. 
but I've just fully embraced them. I didn't invent bike turbos by any means, but I have my own take on like what I look for, how I shape them, et cetera, et cetera. You didn't invent bike turbos, Jeff. Yeah, is that, is that amazing? <laughs> but shaping them, it's totally changed my practice in regards to class three ramps and class two bike turbos and efficiency. So it's- Yeah, explain it's it for things. maybe someone who's not familiar with these. You know, five years ago, Every patient that I had, it was like bike turbos on the lower sixes. Just throw them on the lower, every, every patient. Lower, uh, if they, on if, the upper sixes, if but oh, there you it's go. like the same. If yeah. they're hitting the lower brackets, just put them on the lower sixes, you know? Yeah. And it was very, very simplistic, my view of it. But so positioning them, where you position is very important. Brachyfacial, dolicofacial patients, mm-hmm. open bite, deep bite, where the upper incisors are positioned, how you stage them, if you move them, are you leveling out the occlusal plane? Do you want them on the upper incisors when you're doing that? There's certain things that are very consistent in my cases, typically wire selection, and there's certain things that change a lot. Position of bite turbos, early elastics, bracket height positioning, all those kind of things. But bite turbos, for me, are just absolutely unique to each case. And some of them are just positioned, just standard flat, upper incisors or sixes or sevens, depending on the vertical of the case. And some of them are shaped to encourage an AP change or, or even a transverse change if there's a crossbite or something like that. But the, the creativity is taking that force of occlusion that battles us at times, you know, and using that force and trying to redirect it in a certain way that helps with the malocclusion. Gotcha. But I found those to be super efficient and I love it. So I haven't tried the functional turbos. I would like to. So for like a class two patient, you're going to put on the upper fours, right? And then you're going to sort of slant them, I guess, distally, Distal. exactly right? right? So it's almost like a twin block that when the yeah. lower premolars hit that, ramp surface, it's bringing the mandible forward. Is that right. the concept? Yep. So typical class two bite turbos would be on the upper fours the way that I do them, sloping back so that they hit the distal side of the lower fours. Okay. And when you bite down, there's obviously a vertical component of the force, but there's also an AP component. And I have a lot of cases where we show kind of what that looks like in compliant patients with, and you always pair it with early elastics. You see a benefit in patients who aren't even compliant with their elastics. So I use them in cases that are like a quarter step or a half step class two. I'll shape the bite ramps on the upper fours. I'll set up in those cases often to, I'll put bands on the upper sixes. And in the consult room, I'll say, you know, we're going to have the patient wear rubber bands. You know, we're going to charge a certain amount for the forces. Mm -hmm. If they wear them well, that comes off the contract. And what I've found is I use a lot fewer forces springs, even with like minimal elastic compliance. If the class two bite ramps are made correctly, I see a big improvement from that. You take that quarter step or half step and it improves enough to the point by seven months into treatment when I'm pan repo, I don't even need to consider the forces anymore. So it's That's a win awesome. win. I'm not yeah. I'm not bitching at my patients about rubber bands as much. Rapport wise with patients, it's a win. Efficiency, it's a win. Not using the expensive forces springs, it's a win. Yeah, I, I just I think that it's something we should all consider. It comes with a learning curve yeah. because you do have to shape those things. I mean it's much easier to delegate, just throw a blob of composite onto your assistant on this tooth or that tooth. You have to see where the bite is. You have to shape them just yeah. right. It comes with a learning curve. And the orthodontist has to do it first. And then there can be some delegation to the assistant for how to do that. But the juice is worth the squeeze is what I would say. Because it really, yeah, it's a win, win, win. Yeah. Something else I love that you talked about today was if you have ectopic or high canine teeth and you want to avoid creating a cant by hooking those teeth up with a wire, you talked about protecting the neighbor teeth, right? Yeah. I use elastics and early elastics and something that I picked up from Tom Pitts, you know, a lot of early elastics. Mm -hmm. When I use early elastics, what I think about is protecting the neighbor teeth. So take, for example, high canine. If you have space between the lateral and the first by and you're hooking up to this canine and the super elastic night tie wire is up to the canine, there's plenty of force coming down on that canine to bring it in. You do not need to wear a triangle rubber band to that (laughs) tooth as well. And that's something stupid that I did for a long time years ago. 
But now my focus is, you know, if you're considering vertical incisor position or certain other things, I want to turn off the activation to the teeth that I don't want to move. I'll wear rubber bands to the neighboring teeth to prevent them from moving. So a lot of times when I'm wearing rubber bands, I'm thinking about what orthodontic movement do I want to turn off? A lot of times I think about turning force off on certain teeth that I don't want to see negative consequences to. So I think there's a lot of thinking involved in elastics as well that can, be, that can be beneficial. What goes on in Chad Foster's mind, really, thinking through all these things? During the- <laughs> you don't want to go in here, man. No. <laughs> no, no, no. It's, uh, it gets thick. It gets thick, huh? One more pearl I'm going to mention here. You use the Norris system, Dr. Tito Norris's brackets. Yep. yep. You talked about inverting or flipping upper two to two brackets when you want to reduce uh, proclination or flaring, correct? Oh, for sure. Yeah. yeah. What's the normal uh, prescription or the torque on a Norris bracket? For people who, you know, you have 17 degrees in MBT on an upper incisor, you have 10 degrees in Roth. When you're inverting upper incisors, no matter what your bracket system is, you want to be conscious of what you're doing. And so yeah. there's a whole... That gets really into the weeds in regards to understanding the prescription that you're doing, flipping brackets for negative torque. And there's a lot of consequences to doing that. My biggest influence on that was Tom Pitts. He was the earliest guy that I saw doing that. And I have my own kind of spin on doing that as well. It was a kind of a thick paper that I published in U.S. Orthodontic Practice in 2021. Hmm. Any appliance that we use, it doesn't matter what appliance you use, you should be a ninja with that appliance. You should know exactly what it does. You should understand the in, out, the thickness of the bracket, the torque built in, and you should be able to take any bracket and put it on another bracket and understand what it's doing. So as long as that's the case, as long as you understand the tool that's in your hand and everything about it, you're going to be fine, you know, but I think that's really key. But inverting upper incisor brackets, there were a number of cases I showed this weekend. You know, you have a case where it's just this extreme crowding and protrusion and bicuspids are already gone. I've I've already taken them out, but they're still extremely protrusive. Some of those cases would be hard to finish well if you didn't have a negative torque appliance on the upper incisors. And there's lots of different applications and people who are critical of people who post about that can make it out to be some, you know, very simplistic thing. But it comes down to understanding your appliance and flipping upper incisors is not a freaking philosophy. It's one tool that's in our bag and it should be in the bag of any orthodontist. Chad, something else you mentioned in your talk today, which I thought was super sweet. You said, my family is the color of my life. Yes. What did you mean by that? So I'm a very black and white person. Like I can, I can kind of set a goal for myself and just delay gratification or just, you know, zone in on one thing and focus on that. Like, mm-hmm. and it's kind of a disease and a skill in a way, mm-hmm. but I can be very black and white in my approach to life, focusing in on very little things or things that I'm very focused on. And so It's a good thing in a lot of different ways, but my family, my wife and my kids provide color in my life. They provide spontaneity. They provide just things that are outside of my nature, pulling me away from things that maybe I'm focused on or things that I can, I can just commit myself to fully. Do you think like me, you get sort of like into the weeds a little bit, like, like zoomed in? Absolutely, man. And so for me, it's a balance of doing things that I care about, understanding why I care about what I care about. You know, what's driving me, what's motivating me and making sure that I'm doing things that I actually care about because I'm I'm 42 now and, you know, years are ticking by and I just want to make sure that my efforts and my energy because energy and time are the limited resources and I want to make sure I'm putting those towards things that I really care about yeah. and understanding why I care about them. And for me, my wife and my kids are everything to me. Yeah, I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm very lucky. Let's talk about some of your hobbies. Yep. Yeah. What do you like to do for fun? Me and Natalie like to travel. If I'm not doing orthodontics, I'm spending time with my family. I like to travel. We've been to a lot of different countries. We've had the benefit of doing that. What's your favorite? Um, 
We have the pub here. Our favorite country and countries would be like Scotland and Ireland. We just love the, the people are amazing. They're just a very unique people. The countryside is beautiful. Pubs are amazing. We love Scotland and Ireland. We're going back to Copenhagen this year. Natalie and I love Copenhagen. We like amazing. Prague. We like Amsterdam. We like traveling all over Europe. We've been just a number of different places, but yeah. Incredible. Chad, it's just about time to wrap this up. I know the cool. party is just about to happen, so we got to close up the mics here. Before we do, I want to mention that you do have an upcoming speaking engagement. I believe it's uh, November in Dallas. Is that correct? Yeah, it's another version of what we did this weekend with Dynaflex with the Exceptional Aesthetics course. It's in November, and I believe it's in Dallas, and it's just similar to what we did now. Just focus on aesthetics and efficiency and just another opportunity to nerd out and... Uh, just kind of progress things that are of interest in that niche. Fantastic. And so if you're interested in that course, head over to Dynaflex.com for more information, I assume. Yep. Chad, thank you so much again for coming on the podcast. It was an honor. Love the conversation today. This was a true honor, man. I enjoy your podcast a lot. So to have you here in the pub, which is my most special place in the world with my family and my kids, couldn't be better. So life is good and I appreciate you, man. Uh, thanks so much, Chad. Cheers. Cheers to you, sir. That's all for this episode of the Illuminate Orthodontic Podcast. If you're a fan of the show, be sure to subscribe or follow Illuminate on your favorite podcast app. Also, I'd appreciate if you could leave a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. A very special thanks to our sponsors for this episode. That's 3M Oral Care and Dental Monitoring. As always, this podcast would not be possible without the Illuminate team. That's Skylar Adler on the mixing console and Tom O'Grady on the Fender Rhodes electric piano. Thanks so much for listening to the Illuminate Orthodontic Podcast. To hear exclusive outtakes, suggest a guest, or sponsor an episode, head over to IlluminateOrthoPodcast.com. Until next time, this is Dr. Chris Seta signing off. But wait, there's more. If you listen this far, you found our hidden bonus content. We had such a great night hanging out at Chad and Natalie's basement Irish pub called the Ram and the Rabbit. So just for fun, here's a few outtakes from recording this episode. Yeah. Right. And especially to... Um, oh, sorry, Chad. Lost my, my train of thought. Oh, no I'm worries. Gonna, have another drink. And, yeah, <laughs> yeah, brother. <laughs> Uh, you recently became in 2021. Congrats. Ooh, let me try that again. Skylar got to punch me in. <laughs> Tequila's Tequila. In, yeah. Tequila, baby. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>